Welcome to another episode of the Perfect Movie Soundtrack, where the movie needs the soundtrack as much as the soundtrack needs the movie. I'm Joshua Weber. I'm Heather Samples. And I'm Matt Lombardi. Join us this week as we travel to Kellerman's Mountain House to dance with the degenerates, to learn what Heather really feels about Patrick Swayze, and wonder just how many episodes we can manage to jam in the Muppets Take Manhattan. You remember and if I the magic of the music, never let you go. the passion of the dancing, so you and how they made you feel. You so now digitally remastered. This time it's better than you remember. The timeless story of a young girl's first love. Who's that? Oh, them. They're the dance people. The dancing brought them together. The world tried to tear them apart. I'm scared of everything. Most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. Relive the joy of a love that set you dancing. Guys, I'm excited for this. I am too. I I think I reaffirmed that I really like this movie. All right, tonight's movie is Dirty Dancing. You know what? We always say tonight. Why is it always tonight? Because we record at night and I'm nuts. I know. But today, it could, but people listen to it at whatever time. So, um, whatever time you're listening to this, the movie is Dirty Dancing. The story of boy meets girl, boy loses girl. Boy and girl perform erotic dance for her parents. Okay. Yeah. A little reductive, but... It's, it's, <laughs> what? A little too reductive? Okay. Uh, no, I like he's it. He's very aggressive about showing Lenny Briscoe <laughs> yeah. who's in charge now. When he gives a little speech about who he is, and then he starts grinding his daughter in front of the whole club. Yeah. Gotta love it. All right. Dirty Dancing is the brainchild of Eleanor Bergstein, who... Uh, was very much adamant about this not being completely autobiographical, though many of the details come from her own life, and this script is very, very much a passion project for her. We will talk more about a lot of the aspects of how it got made in a little bit, but the important things, which all of you listening already know, of course, is that it stars Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze, Jerry Orbach. And, uh, I love Jerry you know, Orbach. I think one of the other things that's kind of fun in this movie is there's a couple people that it's easy to forget that they're in this movie. So I'm going to throw it to you guys here for a second. Like, what? Who? Who's somebody that you were like, oh yeah, that person? Uh, <laughs> I've got one. We know. We know the number one. <laughs> Whoa. Newman. Yeah, uh, that's a big Newman. one. Yeah. What's his name? Who Again? cares? Oh, what Wayne, does it Wayne Knight. What is it? Because he's, <laughs> he is, he is, he's Newman from Seinfeld. He's like all sweaty when Sharon Stone uncrosses her legs in basic instinct. Yes. He's the dude in Jurassic Park. Yes. He's got all these weird little magical movie moments. And then I was like, oh yeah. And Dirty Dancing. He's doing some bad comedy at the Borscht Belt. And in this movie, he's like a cross between the stage manager in our town <laughs> and like a Greek chorus. And a magician. (laughs) I love when he tells that joke and the laugh he does after it, the really bad joke he tells. 
Say more, Matt. Uh, He's like, he's like on stage and he's doing the classic kind of borscht belt comedian thing. And he's like, I met a girl, I'm paraphrasing. And he's like, she looks like my mother. She acts like my mother. She's just like my brother, mother. I bring her home. My father doesn't like her. And then he starts laughing like out of control. (laughs) It's really, it's really funny. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, he really turns it up to 11. He squeezes a lot out of a role that Wayne Knight. Uh, That's his whole career. I mean, Uh, it's worked. Is that his name? Am I saying the wrong name? It's Wayne. Uh, we don't have to refer to him by his given Christian name of Wayne Knight. Yeah. I think it is totally fair for us to just call him Newman. Yes, that is fair. In addition to Newman, <laughs> we have a surprise guest who maybe not everybody would be as excited about as Matt and I were, which is oh, yeah. the little known character actor who plays uh Kellerman's grandson, the the scion of the Borscht yeah. Belt Resort, and little jerk, um, <laughs> is this and little little like pipsqueak jerk, uh, is the same actor who is fighting for the cause in Muppets Take Manhattan. Yes, he he is yet another scion in Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, but this time around, he's got bigger, brighter, better ideas than uh, the patriarchs. And he's going to make sure that the frogs and chickens and <laughs> bears and whatevers all all make it to Broadway. Wait, what is this guy's... What is his name? He's a Kellerman? Yeah, in the, in the uh, movie, he's, yeah. He's he's the, a, um, oh my God, Matt, have you ever seen it, a movie that you could keep track of a character's name? <laughs> is, I'm trying to find out... His first name's Lonnie. I okay, looked it up. Okay, there we go. I Lonnie Price. To feel, I also started to feel a little bad for this guy. Like, he's getting weirdly typecast in, like, I'm a young Jewish guy roles, which I guess makes mm. sense in the 80s. Um, well, you're not going to feel bad after what I say about Lonnie Price. Tell me about, make me feel better <laughs> about Lonnie Price, Matt. So, you had made, you had mentioned this connection and it, this earlier, and it blew connection. my mind because I've watched these movies my... My whole um, life and growing up, and are we wrecking Joshua's intro here? We just like I think jumped we into are, like. But we're just gonna the, go with it for like one right. more minute. <laughs> and I could not believe that Lonnie Price played the little mean jerk who brags about owning hotels and is like, "I'm going to Cornell." All over baby, yeah, and he's like <laughs> really gross. But then he's like the up lifting anyone can do anything believer in the Muppets. I'm going to make this show happen. And you love him so much. So my, what I learned from this is Lonnie Price is an amazing actor. Well, okay. <laughs> because I never knew he was the same guy. One is like beloved. And then this one, you want to like murder him. So I'm like, wow, this guy's good. This guy should have got more roles. So those are the surprises. So don't feel bad Joshua. about Lonnie Price. He's great. <laughs> Lonnie Price. Lonnie, if you're out there, you're invited That's on off, the show. buddy. You're in two <laughs> great films. <laughs> While we're talking about who's in this, I have a very quick uh, little casting quiz for you. So I'm going to give you some names, and I want you to tell me who was not considered for a role in this movie. Okay? Okay. (laughs) All right. Who was not considered for a role in this movie? Winona Ryder, Sarah Jessica Parker, Benicio Del Toro, Billy Zane, or Dr. Ruth Westheimer? I I, I know (laughs) the answer. 
because um, I watched a little documentary of Dirty Dancing. All right. Um, Winona Ryder. Uh, you are wrong. She was considered to play baby. The answer is... I, I think it's Dr. Ruth. Uh, you were wrong. It was a trick question. Everybody was considered. Ah. Dr. Ruth Westheimer <laughs> was actually um, originally supposed to be slated to play a character in the movie because she was friends with um, somebody involved, either either the writer, Eleanor, or the producer. I'm, I don't remember which one. But anyway, no, she was very much um, supposed to be in it. I think she got sick or something like that. I don't remember what happened. Damn you. That was a mean trick because I was like, I knew all the others but her. I have a follow, follow-up one. I'm so glad they didn't cast Winona, yeah. which is a sentence I never thought I'd ever say. Okay, so who of that list, <laughs> who were the forerunners for the role of Baby and... And, and um, um, Johnny, <laughs> Baby and Johnny, who were the forerunners? So for Baby, uh, was it Winona Ryder or Sarah Jessica Parker? For Johnny, was it Benicio Del Toro or Billy Zane? Billy Zane was the for the frontrunner. And I mean, I'm going to go with Sarah Jessica Parker because I'm guessing that there was like enough anti-Semitism that they were like, I'm, I'm... she looks Jewish <laughs> enough for this role. Okay, and Matt, you already know this, right? No, but Jewish people are making this, so That's I don't true. think... That's true, actually. Oh, yeah, they're no, being yeah, yeah, every, pretty much most of the people involved in this are pretty Jewish. Okay. Like, yeah. the woman, yeah. it was she wrote right. about her life, um, Bergstein, yeah. and then the guy who produced it read the script, and he said, oh, yeah. shit, I used to go to these places when I was a kid. So maybe they took one look at Winona, and we're like, she's over here with Tim Burton. We'll, we'll let her be there. Right. We're going to go with SJP. You are correct. It was Sarah Jessica Parker and Billy Zane were, were very much, um, a lot of people preferred them, in fact. Um, but but there is a clip of Billy Zane dancing, and he looks like a drunk guy yeah, at a wedding. It is hilarious. We might, maybe we like, can. It uh, is shocking uh, that they were going to consider. Put that on Twitter or something, because it's it's really funny to see. Him Billy Zane could have really been uh, one of the scumbag. Yeah. Sure. One of the scumbag sure. characters, just like he was in Titanic. He did a beautiful job of playing a scumbag. Yeah, one of like the, the off to Ivy League waiter kids. I'll be going. Robbie, he can be to Robbie. Cornell Hospitality <laughs> Management School. It's a real dig at Cornell. Actually, they don't yeah. know it when they're saying it, but when you look at it now, you're like, yeah, Cornell is the shittiest of the Ivies. <laughs> well, it's because then, like the jerk kid Robbie, who's all over the place and sleeping with people, wow, that guy's he's going to like a better school, right? Yeah. He He's no, going to like Yale or something. Harvard. And he's like, he's going to Harvard and he's like the better looking. He's real jerk. And so poor little uh, Kellerman. What's his name again? I can't remember. Neil name. Kellerman. Neil Kellerman. They gave him Cornell because that is a nice little dude. Yeah, Cornell's where you go if you want to study birds or hotels. <laughs> <laughs> So um, it took a little while to get it made, and that's something we're going to talk a little bit more about in a little while. But right now, I'm just going to give you the, the basic overview, which is that uh, um, it was released in 1987. It premiered at Cannes, actually, early in the year, but it took some time for it to come out in America. It came out in August. It was directed by Emil Artolino, who had previously won an Academy Award for a short documentary he made about kids dancing. So it was kind of a weird choice. Oh, he's like a little dance freak? He's a choreographer. Yeah, yeah, he's like a choreographer who made 
made this thing loose all over again. And people really credit him with capturing a lot of really um, spectacular moments. They pretty much hired him because he would say yes and because he had literally won an Academy Award. It's not like they had any confidence that he was right for this or something. It was like, hey, yeah. let's pick this guy. And then people, th people, you know, think everybody involved really liked him. Um, and uh, note to all hiring managers yeah, everywhere. Yeah. You don't have to hire somebody who has already done the thing. You can hire somebody who yes. you think is five. <laughs> yeah. And who seems like a good pick. They <laughs> also did it because they had no money, though. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. And then he um, unfortunately, very sadly, um, not too many years after that, he dies of AIDS in 1993. As a, I don't remember how old, but a pretty young man still. Um, one of the big, big people credited with this movie that you've got to give a lot of credit to is the dance choreographer, Kenny Ortega, who I don't know much about because I don't know much about dance. But if you're listening to this and you do, I imagine this name rings loud. Um, he in an early in the movie Xanadu, he mentored with Gene Kelly for film choreography, which is a pretty good way to going before that he had been a big dancer and stuff and so his people knew him but then he goes on to give a really spectacular um, movie and tv career and heather you are a big fan of one of the movies he directed not just dance choreographed but directed newsies what yeah yeah he made a bunch of stuff and um he directed newsies he wow. directed newsies and he then later and later you know later he went on and directed high school musical one two and three i mean it's you know, it's pretty cool. Newsies sell papes. <laughs> oh my God. Is that a Newsies quote? How is Lonnie yeah. Price not in Newsies, Heather? Excellent question, <laughs> Matt. He would work. Can I just throw in another Art Artolino since we're talking about uh, director credits, uh, the director of Dirty Dancing? Yeah. He also made Sister Act. Oh, which I, I had not that. known. That. Oh my God, oh, wow. another sister. Okay, so at this point yes. in this fucking podcast, <laughs> we are yes. incapable of making an episode that does not reference Sister Act, The Muppets, Take Manhattan. Right. Uh, for a while, it was back. We've kind of pulled heart. back on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we heart. pulled back on back. We've got a lot of heart. Yeah, heart. Heart's been big. It's okay. Wait, there's another movie. It's okay. There's we have we there. have a through line. We have a we have a red. Oh, red. this is all <laughs> this is all part of the plan. <laughs> Um, I think the last thing to say about this is if you, what you kind of already know, but I want to break it down just a little bit more, is that this movie was a freaking hit. I mean, a huge movie, a movie that was rolled out with almost no fanfare, um, fair to decent reviews. Like the reviews mm -hmm. are pretty much like people, a lot of people didn't like it that much, but then some people did. Some people are like, hey, you know what? This is a pretty solid little movie, but there's no fanfare totally word of mouth this movie picks up every single weekend it comes out and very quickly within a couple of months is an absolute monster international smash to give you a sense of that um it was made for 4.5 million dollars and it made 214 million worldwide mm -hmm. now i broke that down to give you a little comparison that's 47 times its budget Avengers Endgame, which ends up making 2.8 billion, is only only profited eight times its budget. Wow. Oh, I love that math. This Joshua broke out the Excel for this shit. This yeah. thing profited 47 times. <laughs> 47 times its budget. It's the first film ever, the first film ever to sell a million copies on home video. Look, that VHS tape. Uh, if you did not have that in your basement, 
you couldn't host a slumber party. <laughs> you were you were banned. You were like, we can't do it at that chick's house. I I, I, I have a personal experience attesting to this. Not a slumber party, but the power of it. In the reason I know Dirty Dancing, and as I watch it, now, I haven't seen it forever. I know lines from it. I know like everything that's going to happen to down to the smallest little movement. And I was like, wow, this is really imprinted on my brain. And it's because in the summer of the movie came out in 1987, I want to say maybe the summer of 1988, 89, my sister and her good friend had a bet one summer who can watch dirty dancing more times Oh wow! on the honor system. Yeah. And my sister being older had control of, you know, the VCR and so there was no Muppets Take Manhattan or Ghostbusters or the shit I wanted to watch. And it was just almost every day she was watching it. And, you know, when you're the younger brother and you're like, I don't know, eight or nine, you just end up watching it. And I swear to God, she might just have put it on almost every day. But Lisa somehow won. And I think she said she's even watched it twice in one day. <laughs> so that is the power of Dirty Dancing to young women of the 80s and young men, because then I became part of the cult and I hadn't watched it forever and was prepared just to be like, all right, another footloose experience. It'll be fun. It's a cultural moment. And then I found myself being moved and emotionally involved in the characters. And I was, you know, it has its cheesy lines, but I'm like, you earned it. You earned all those cheesy lines. Well, I'm going to ask, I'm, I've, got, I'm gonna, I've got a specific question about that in a couple minutes about, about, what you're saying about the film working for you, because I want to know a little bit more about that in a moment. But just just to summarize a couple more things here really quick and then kick off the finish with the legacy is that it is to date sold 10 million DVDs. So that's not counting the videos. This is just DVDs, 10 million DVDs. It continues to be a big seller. Um, at the time, it inspired a traveling, a tour, the Dirty Dancing tour, which I tried to watch uh, a video of, but I couldn't I couldn't get the torrent to work for it. But uh, apparently there's video of it. Um, dance classes, apparently all over the country and probably internationally, dance class attendance like went through the roof. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was even a television series. I guess it was not a very successful one. I don't remember it, but it did have 11 episodes in 1988 to 1989. And then... Maybe this was before people figured out how to really build a franchise. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's clearly going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, a couple years after that, you get um, the dual releases of Lombada and oh, yeah, The I Forbidden Dance, <laughs> which um, in a little bit of research I discovered is a whole wonderful story that we need to get into at some point because there's basically two cousins who decide, one cousin decides he's going to make Lombada and the other cousin decides he's going to show him up and make another Lombada movie. He is not allowed to call it Lombada though, so he has to call it The Forbidden Dance. Wow. And these also, <laughs> I would say, are part of the legacy of Dirty Dancing. Wow. It is a movie that I have been seeing on TV and in culture my entire life. And therefore, I assumed that I had seen it. Mm -hmm. It was very quickly into watching the movie that I realized I had not seen it. I'm going to talk more about that in a little while. But I will say definitively, unquestionably, the movie works. It's a good movie. I, there's a lot of there's a lot of things ways you could criticize it because there are. I mean, it's an indie movie, yeah. And it's a movie you can tell they didn't know it was going to be a big hit. So like, yeah, there's flaws and there's some barely, cheats in barely. the story and stuff. But the movie definitively works. And oh so, my god, my heart is so full right now. 
I want to know why. I want to know because why. And I want to know from each of you, your subjective, and I, I'm sure you have theories, because I don't think, I think we can all say it works. I think everybody agrees it works, but why does this movie work so well? Matt seems like he wants to start. It's because I just want to highlight that it's, people don't think of Dirty Dancing, because it was such a huge hit, as an indie movie. It was a small, tiny indie movie. And they had no money and they shot it in a matter of weeks and they were scraping things together and they were worried they couldn't afford any of the music. And when you have an indie movie, you don't have all these producers like breathing down your neck and telling you what to do and telling you what beats you have to hit Mm -hmm. and do that. And it's an honest movie that a woman wrote and if you ever see her interviewed, she seems pretty adamant about not wanting to change anything. At one time they thought the movie yeah. was going to be a complete flop and they had a deal with Clearasil acne cream that they were going to put on the poster. And they were like, let's do this. And they wanted to market it to kids. And then Clearasil was like, wait a minute, this whole movie revolves around an abortion plot. And they were like, we can't deal. And they were like, you have to cut it out. And the woman's like, I'm not cutting that out. That's half the whole movie and the reason for everything happening. And so when you have people like that, just saying, Oh yeah, there's an abortion in here. We're dealing with that. And they're just dealing it in a very real way that this woman probably experienced it and not moralizing it or making it this big Hollywood choice or anything. It's just part of something that needs to get done and then baby helps out and it leads to all the dirty dancing. I guess we'll explain the plot later, but (laughs) I think that's why it works. So you're watching it and her relationship with her father seems genuine and the abortion pot seems genuine and you're like oh yeah this woman who had a similar experience just wrote this movie how she wanted to write it and no one said you need a bigger scene with baby and johnny they should Mm. fall in love at the end and run away together like they basically break up before the grand finale and you know they're not going to be together which is also a move that i don't know if hollywood producers would let you do in 1987 or whatever anyway so my theory is it's a small scrappy indie movie and that's why it ages well, because the choices aren't big Hollywood production choices, even though people were dying for this to be a big Hollywood movie, because then the audience just willed it into like an iconic film. So what are you saying? What is what is the magic that it's an indie movie? No, the magic is it's like come for Footloose, but stay for an actual human story. Oh, OK, good, good. Heather? Heather's nodding. Yeah, that's a really, it's funny that you say that, Matt, because we have watched this movie so shortly after watching Footloose, and I've seen this movie a jillion times, and so I know all of its beats, I know everything that's going to happen, and yet, it's been a long time since I've seen it, and watching it, I was like, oh my god, no wonder, like, little baby young Heather loved this movie so much, like, it's (laughs) such a good movie, And, and I kept thinking, like, it's, it's so much better than Footloose. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, and, it is. and yet it's got, it's, it's doing, it's trying to do a lot of the same kind mm-hmm. of stuff. It's, yeah. it's trying to show like what happens when the gerontocracy is overthrown. It's trying to show yep. what happens when like young women are taken seriously. It's trying to show what happens when like just sheer joy in bodily expression is allowed to thrive. Like, and yet it's a, it's like an infinitely better movie. And I think for me, part of it, it's really hard to divorce it from the years and years and years of being like emotionally invested in watching it in a basement full of girls. <laughs> but but for me, I think like a big part of why it succeeds is because it's believable about things that are hard to make hmm. believable. Like what? A, like baby is both astonishingly sexy and 
breathtakingly beautiful and yet she is a total (laughs) fucking down ass girl she wears her hair in like her not it's naturally curly state when her sister wants to quote make it more beautiful for the end scene she realized even lisa the older sister realizes quickly like actually the way you wear it is already beautiful and let me let me just interrupt really quick to say you mentioned something about that in in our texting and um i didn't i didn't get that that's something that I didn't get it all. So you're explaining that I, I'm, I'm assuming I'm probably not the only person listening right now who did doesn't understand the significance of her having curly hair. It was a big deal. And I assume that it was it's like a differently kind of big deal for Jewish girls. But but for like Gentile white girls, it was a big deal to to have naturally curly hair on screen in a way that wasn't about like curling your bangs until they were straight while the rest of your hair was permed or like flat ironing your hair, (laughs) crimping your hair. Like there was a, there's like an earthiness to baby that's just arresting. Hmm. Um, And I think we all, we all buy into the stakes of the movie, the stakes for, uh, yeah, the stakes are very real and seem very normal. Yeah. As well. Yeah. This, the, the stakes for Penny and her abortion are real. The stakes for baby passing through that veil of my father is the most important man in my life to my father is not the Mm. most important man in my life. Passing through the veil of my father defines all of what is masculinity to my father does not define what is all of what, what, what masculinity is to me. Like those are big fucking deals and they are timeless in a way that like when your student says, from the beginning of time humanity has like that kind of universalism is so easy to fuck up and they don't fuck it up they don't fuck it up it has it it's it has a relevance that's lovely and the father feels very real too because he's great when things are going wrong and he's mad at her and she lies to him and they're at breakfast he's like we're leaving today and he's like being the mean father and then everyone looks at him and then he realizes that's not practical and he just does what a real dad would do and he's like all right i'm a little upset we won't leave today but uh, you know, and he's still kind of mad and he's like, it's fine. Cause the wife is like, what are you talking about? And I feel like in a movie they would have made him some like angry patriarch who wouldn't budge, but instead he kind of like, I ah, went a little too far there. Okay, fine. But I'm still pissed. And I was like, Oh, this just feels like a real person or a real dad. And I feel like there's little moments. It's also Jerry Orbach. Who's great at it. He's great. At because it. when he's mad, it doesn't seem like dumb dad mad. You really yeah. like, Oh no, he's really disappointed. He's right. also like saving women as a doctor, helping them with their abortions. And yeah. his first line is like, what is his first line about the dogs down in Birmingham? Oh yeah. No, oh, he's like that. Yeah. That would be a tragedy. It's not a tragedy that older sister Lisa like failed to bring the 11th pair of shoes it's a tragedy yeah. that things are happening in Birmingham. He said, it's a tragedy that the police brought the, brought the dogs in Birmingham. And you're like, all right, I'm in. This guy's awesome. So, so like, Joshua, you asked Matt for his two-sentence summary. If I had to do that, I'd say, like, this is a movie that's totally believable about the passage from being a teenager to, like, being a true young woman who's totally independent of the forces around her and making her own path. And that is... 1000% seductive and mm. it's seductive to everybody. It's seductive to like men who want to see it happen. And it's seductive to girls who are inspired by it. It's, it's, it's undeniable the seductiveness and the attractiveness of, of the movie and the people in it and stuff, you know, um, it definitely succeeds in that regard. Um, I, I think that some of what you guys are saying are touching on something that I, that I think is, is part of the reason I think it works so well. And it has to do with, sort of the political bedrock of it all. And 
Actually, you mentioned like how they mentioned the Birmingham dogs. There's also a mention earlier when uh, Baby Inner tells somebody her real name is Francis, and she says, like the first woman in the cabinet. Francis and Perkins. Like, yeah, well, I had to look that up because I was like, what an odd thing to say. Like, um, I looked it up, and yeah, okay, so the first woman in, in the cabinet, I think she was in um, Roosevelt's cabinet. and uh, She was labor. Yeah. It was like the 30s, though, right? Yeah, right. Um, cool so reference. there's these little these these little mentions that I'm just like, all right, this writer's clearly you know gonna gonna drop these things in, and then of course you've got the abortion plot, and and you know if you read some of, some of the critics are very into the politics of the movie, and some people have written pretty eloquently about how much the movie is about class and mm-hmm. uh, these things. I will say that I think you could probably overdo how the much the movie is doing those things in the sense that it's a feel good movie, it's a fun movie. <laughs> That's really ultimately why it succeeds, but. The fact that the bedrock and the foundation of this movie is about these real things, politics, gender, abortion, class, uh, it's something that you can then have all the fluff and all the fun and and it's it's founded in something. And I say that because we've watched some pretty bad movies that you're like, what the fuck is this movie founded on? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's nothing underneath it. There's nothing, and this is about a number of movies we've seen now. There's nothing underneath the shiny surface. Yeah, some of them there are, and some of them, some of them aggressively there aren't. Like Pulp Fiction, there's not much under the surface, but that's the point. That's okay. That's what Pulp Fiction's playing with. Some of them, like a Judgment Night or a Charlie's Angels, there's not much under the surface, and that's a different kind of point. Like they're not worried about that. It's not their concern. This one, I wouldn't say it's like you're watching the movie and thinking like, go class. Go abortion politics. Well, nowadays I was watching it saying go abortion politics. Sure. Of course, we're going to say something about that, I'm sure. But but I'm saying that like the feel good and the fun and the, the, the romance and the relationships are all built on a really strong foundation of, of struggle and interesting ideas that we all kind of know about and we exist in that world. And while it's not forefront, for me, it wasn't. It's, I think that when I look back at like, why did this work so well? It's undeniable that that them insisting on putting that stuff in there grounds mm-hmm. the movie in a way that allows it to be fluff in a way that matters and is better than most of the fluff we've seen. Yeah, I think that's such a great point because in watching this, I realized how way too kind I was being to Footloose because I was like big movies in the 80s and I was trying to be like it's (laughs) an after school special but it's a little better and I get what they're doing and then I was watching this and I was like oh this is as fun and silly as Footloose but But. then you you also feel for all the characters and there's like the bedrock of politics and it's also just a point of view like Mm -hmm. the Francis Perkins reference the Birmingham dogs thing and also it's a visual it's like it's visually you can tell how much care has been taken. Like the number mm-hmm. of shots that are iconic to us and our generation for such good reason, because you cannot from from just a sheer art direction, cinematography standpoint, argue with them is off the charts. Yeah, like, I have thoughts it, about that. But let me just finish my, my whole point of view thing is because they accidentally, because they were broke, they just let a woman who had an experience write about that experience. Which is the only way we... We let a woman write about an experience is accidentally exactly because it's <laughs> exactly right it's it's 1987 when it came out it's 85 86 no one wanted the script it's a jewish woman writing about a story that revolves around abortion no one wanted it it was made by a weird vhs um producer this company do you remember the company's name 
like it's a Vestro, I believe Vestro. And they just put out B movie crap and no one would make it. And they wanted to make their own movies. And a guy came across the strip. It wasn't what they did, but he was like, Oh my God, this is perfect. I went to one of these places as a kid and then it was a mess and they barely had any money. And that's the only reason it got made and someone's point of view got out there. So yeah, it was accidental. Totally. It was the reason why one of the big reasons why this movie is so successful to us, even now is because it has a point of view. It only has a point of view. We should all remember by accident. Yeah. Like it, 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 it slipped through all of capitalism's cracks. They even showed it to a producer and he told him to burn the negatives. He said, you have nothing here. And he was the guy who made like trading places and some other big movie. And he's like, you guys are screwed. And they thought they were all screwed. And then turns out he was wrong. Part of the reason he is wrong is, Heather, you alluded to the iconic shots, is, and this goes to the directing. Um, like, I, you know, when I'm when I'm start making like little Twitter things to promote our episode, I'm definitely I'm going to make the uh, like the European movie poster version of this, which is, and for me, it's going to be the shot of Jerry Orbach sitting in that uh, uh, that chair after Baby tells him. You know, tears welling yeah. in his eyes, but still like yeah. And then yeah. and then they then they pull back and they show him like yeah, sitting great. out with the lake behind him. I mean, yeah. it's beautiful. And that comes right after them dancing on the log yeah. over the river. There's like three iconic shots in a row. Or the mm. or the lift in the lake. Although I will say I do have one complaint about the lift in the lake, which is that I believe that it took an awful lot of women down a false path of believing that sex underwater was going to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> do they they don't do it there though i mean no they don't no, but they it's, it's don't, pretty close but you it, it yeah it's suggested to, to you i'm gonna try this okay and then you tried it <laughs> and you kept trying it and you kept being wrong <laughs> oh that's funny anyway it's a beautiful shot it's a beautiful shot it is it is um and i definitely <laughs> like as you know they're 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 showing um, a lot of skin on her in that shot and enough that I was sort of like, man, I, you know, should I, do I need to look up her age before I watch this scene? She's like in her mid twenties. He's in his like early thirties. Uh, yeah, they have is. no she relationship is. to the ages is, they're yeah. supposed to play, but n- never do right. we get any fucking actors who have any relationship to the ages they're supposed to play. <laughs> Not yet. No, that's true. Yeah. What, what are their ages supposed to be? He's like supposed to be a few years older and she's, you know, he's really, un- it's really unknown how, what, how old he's supposed to be. They're really unclear on that. I get the sense that, like, if she's going off to one of the Seven Sisters, Mount Holyoke, in the fall, she's 18, and that he's been, you know, hustling, but he hasn't gotten to the point where he's in the union yet until his dad's cousin, like, gets him in toward the end of the movie. So he's, like, you know, 20, 22, 23. 22 seems way too young. Uh, that, but that's just because he looks old, because he's fucking Patrick yeah. Swayze, and he's busted as fuck. Oh, we wow. can come whoa, back whoa, to that. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, yeah, we are going to come back to that because what you have just learned here is that Heather has feelings about Swayze. We're going to talk about that in a little while. Love the movie. Could leave Swayze behind. So you would have went with Billy Zane. Squeeze it off Let's talk about the soundtrack. Oh, yeah, that. 
Sound good? Yeah. 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 We're going to get to it at some point, right? It's the fifth best-selling soundtrack of all time worldwide. There's basically two types of songs in the movie, and there's the songs that these people are actually dirty dancing to, the music that's actually in their world. And that's, you know, a lot of classic music like uh, Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we got here? What are some other big ones here? Stay. Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs in the Still of the Night, the Five Satins. You know, these classic, like, you know, uh, 50s move songs, 50s, early 60s songs that you hear on oldies channels, you know, and uh, the guy who put who got all that stuff, Jeremy Leonard, maybe he moved the sun and the moon, apparently, to get these songs on the budget they had available. And, and people are like, it's kind of incredible that he was able to score this music. So you've got these really classic songs. And then he convinces his friend um, to write a couple more songs for the movie hungry eyes and i've had the time of my life you know modern 80s you know poppy ballads and then of course you've got she's like the wind Mm -hmm. which patrick swayze wrote and sings and he brought to the production literally during production hey y'all are having trouble finding songs (laughs) here's a song i wrote so and you know why he did that joshua why is that because he'd already struck out twice with this pathetic little song so you're teasing us about where you're going later in your in your patrick swayze thoughts all right all right here's here's the deal with she's like the wind i think it would be 1000 percent fair for any listener to be like wait what that's a patrick swayze song it is strange (laughs) yes friends this is a patrick swayze song by which i mean it was co-written by him and he performs the vocals and like everything about patrick swayze it is mediocre (laughs) Whoa, 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 okay. We'll save time for rebuttals at the end. <laughs> I'm reclaiming my time. <laughs> um, he co-wrote this song in uh, 1984, so like three years before Dirty Dancing. And he co-writes it also for a soundtrack, also for a movie, a Jamie Lee Curtis vehicle called Grandview USA. Have either of you seen this movie? Mm, I've never no, even I heard of it. Yeah, me either. I don't know that anybody's ever seen this movie. Um, when when he wrote it for that, they were like, no, Patrick, fall back. Why don't you... <laughs> <laughs> you do not get to write a movie, a song for this movie. What are you talking about? That is not what actors do, you lunatic. That's right. It's, <laughs> it's an insane thing to do. He also tried it uh, in a movie called Youngblood. Do you guys know this movie? Oh my God, he tried it twice? He tried it twice. Youngblood is a (laughs) Rob Lowe movie that like, who doesn't love Jamie Lee Curtis? Who doesn't love Rob Lowe? These are the worst movies that either of them have ever made. (laughs) And even in those worst movies, Swayze was told like, oh, babe, thanks, no thanks. Hey, this happened to the Karate Kid song. I'm just <laughs> You're right, Matt. I thought about your Karate Kid song. I did. Like, you know, this is a this is a good argument for all of that like grit and persistence shit that they're always shoving down our throats. <laughs> anyway, he he takes this song that he that he co-wrote and he shows up at uh, Dirty Dancing, which as we've already said is kind of you know it's low budget like they're happy they're, to, they're, they're struggling to find songs yeah like they're yeah. happy to take some help and mm-hmm. patrick is like i've got some help and they eat it up they're like that's great we love it fantastic let's do it 
And the song ends up becoming number one on the very cool adult contemporary chart. But hey, it, number one's number one. <laughs> but, it's, but it also rises to number three on the Hot 100. Wow. Um, That's wild. And here's that the thing. Wild. If you, if you want to like know about Patrick Swayze's discography... You <laughs> is it better than Bruce Willis's? Is it is it better than Eddie Murphy's? <laughs> I guess this is a more common thing than we realize. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually interesting that you guys are pointing this out. That like a number of people have played this game. He yeah. he uh, he ends up getting a total before he dies of pancreatic cancer. A total of five songs on various soundtracks wow. for movies he appeared in. Oh my God, that dude was walking around set with demo tapes. So I want everyone (laughs) listening, I want the two of you to like picture Patrick Swayze with his hooded eyes and his doofy haircut. You're turning me on. (laughs) (laughs) And his fucking empty ass skull. His dumb, dumb, dumb self. Standing around being like, This is like, too mean to poor Patrick Swayze. Does anybody want to listen to <laughs> And how you condescendingly <laughs> use his first name. And then we get, and then what we get out of this is She's Like the Wind. And part of why I think this song really remains a song that, like, probably still gets airplay, at least in your local CVS, is that it's, it, if you look at the structure of the song, it's like so predictable. You need to listen to it for like a grand total of 15 seconds before you'd be able to predict all of the lyrics throughout the rest of the song, which <laughs> makes it so sing-alongable. And for this kind of music, I think that's that's like the biggest, most important bar to clear. And and he produces this song that it works beautifully in the movie. Actually, I think in the movie it's a, it's like far better. What's than the it movie is scene in again? In the movie, it happens when uh, when Johnny Castle decides to leave Kellerman's and leave Baby behind for the last couple of days of her summer and not go to the final showcase showdown, whatever the fuck mm-hmm. it's called. And he, <laughs> and he gets it. He gets in his car and he drives off so it's the moment when they are like breaking up parting ways recognizing the the sort of like uh Mm -hmm, faded mm -hmm. nature of this being a summer fling it actually works very very well in that moment but if you listen to the entirety of the song you're like this is really about 20 seconds of music that's stretched into a (laughs) yeah the only it's i mean i don't think it's bad I don't think because Hollywood was rejecting it, that's a good reason for it to be bad. And Patrick Swayze's trying to peddle this song to other movies. I think it's bad because it's a bad song. It's a bad song. I'm amazed. Yeah. But the just a fool to believe I have anything she needs, that little phrase is great. And then he's like, she's like, that part's terrible in the lead up. But just a fool to believe. That's the part that gets stuck in your head. It's really nice little phrase. And then the rest of it, I think you're right. It's just living, living off that. You know what? A Billy Joel fan would say that. (laughs) Hey, it's hard to come up with a beautiful melodic phrase like Billy Joel. (laughs) The man's a master. Him and Paul McCartney. And Patrick Swayze. the way that the soundtrack um for the most part um well no not for the most part throughout it sort of it, it, it kind of makes these ways of acknowledging when the mo- the music is not actually of the era 
Um, there's a fun scene, and I think it's when Hungry Eyes plays that the when when they stop playing the song in the movie, they they show a shot of like a record finishing on a turntable while uh, while Swayze and Gray are dancing together. And the idea is, of course, and they flip the record over so they can keep practicing. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, of course, that that song wasn't playing just then. They weren't listening to Hungry Eyes. Of course, they weren't. They were listening to another song. But the movie is like showing us that we're now switching the song in a way. And then later when they sing, I've, I've had the time of my life, there's a funny moment where somebody, um, the band, somebody turns to the band leader. I think it's the, um, what, uh, the, the, the owner the guy, guy who runs Kellerman. Yeah. yeah. He turns to the band leader and he's like, do you have sheet music for this? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's acknowledging that like these songs don't actually exist in this world in a way that I think most movies don't do. I kind of admire that somebody cared about that little, anachronistic thing that was that the movie was doing um that i think most viewers and stuff don't really care about but as you know as a, as a person what, who likes writing i think it's cool that somebody cared about that so you guys like because like, if this movie was made without the 80s songs i would be fine with it and if they weren't on the soundtrack and it was just all the classic nostalgic big 60s songs but how do you i don't think the movie would have been as successful yeah i don't either so think, yeah how do you guys no. feel about the 80s songs i think they're good for the movie yeah i do too i think that they liven it up i think they keep it from being a weird like version of the big chill they're they're like they're giving it a little bit um, it's not just a pure nostalgia piece yeah yeah i i mean i think that you can tell when you watch that's a good point i yeah i think you could tell when you watch this movie in this moment like smart people were making this thing they didn't have a lot of resources to do it and that shines through but they were thoughtful and they and they had guns that they stuck the soundtrack, to. The soundtrack, you said it's the number five selling all time, I think you said, Matt? That's 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 in large part because of the, the actual number one hit songs on it that were the 80s songs for sure. I was just going to say, I would never abandon the, the last yeah. 80s yeah. song, the big finale one. But I was wondering if the other ones were necessary. But I think you guys are yeah. kind of changing my mind. That it doesn't become a pure nostalgia piece. It kind of... That's right. And, like, I don't want it to be the Wonder Years. Yeah. Right? Like, right. I don't, I don't yes. want it to yes. be this... this uh, I love the I Wonder mean. Years. <laughs> no, but I that you guys were making that good point where it would feel more like the Wonder Years, and it kind of transcends that a little. That's what just clicked in my head when you guys were saying it. It's not a period movie, in other words. And it knows that about itself um, in a way that I think is part of why you can still watch it all this time later and be like, this is a great fucking movie, but it still gets to be a period movie at the same time in its own way. It's, it's, it is doing that too. Yeah. And there's, there's a real, there's a big um, nostalgia. What's interesting is that as I was watching it, it didn't, I actually didn't feel like a much of a nostalgia movie to me at all for the most part. And I think that that's why in 1987, you know, uh, you know, a 13 year old is watching the movie and feeling like it was about yeah. them. Right. And not about their parents. Yeah. But there is a moment later at the end where um, uh, Kellerman is talking about how this is all going away. Mm-hmm. These no, Nobody's going to want to do this anymore. You know, this is all disappearing someday. You know, kids are just going to go to Europe. It's so, such a funny. But anyway, yeah. the point is that like and he's like 22 yeah. countries and you're in three reminded days. That you're like, oh, no, for a lot of the audience and for the writer and for the people who made this movie who were older. This was a nostalgia movie. This is a movie about the way things Yeah, used and to be. also the people who yeah. wrote this movie and made this movie understood that this was the beginning of the end of an era. And yeah. and they were and they were giving mm-hmm. us that little uh, suggestion that it was this beginning of the end of an era in a way that I think is like really kind of lovely and and affecting rather than sentimental. It's 
it's really it's really well done it is when i saw you walking down the street i said that's the kind of gal i like to meet she's so pretty lord she's fine i'm gonna make her mine all mine watching this movie just thinking like this is a great movie and it's no wonder that so many people have loved it it's really Mm -hmm. hard to hate on this movie that's a lot coming from you heather it is it's a lot and also i'll double down matt i was watching this movie while sore and miserable from an IUD insertion after a rogue Supreme Court decided that I am not a citizen anymore. And like that should have made the whole experience really, uh, I mean, I, I would have been like, that enhanced ready. the experience though. No, well, I, it, I feel like I all think, those things made you perfectly ready not, to cry. at dirty I, not dancing. Always. Some, Sometimes no. you don't want to see something like that. Yeah. I think oh it, man. The abortion thing was hitting me so hard. I used to not notice it when I was younger and now I was like, fuck yeah, this is crazy. Like I loved how they did it. I think that's the difference between being a woman and not like, I, uh, I would always notice it a and B, uh, I was, I was like definitely primed to be like, Oh, this like really cute idea of abortion in, in like 1987 mm. is going to be great. Like, of course, sure, yeah, whatever. And and I don't <laughs> think that I was like right. <laughs> deeply in this emotional space watching it, but I was really charmed by it. I was like, yeah, right. and they go there this though. Is, yeah, but this the, is that line when he's like, big feet. "Who is that madman with a butcher knife? What did he do to her with the illegal abortion thing?" and I feel like they didn't pull any punches on what it really was. No, I think they pull no punches, which is lovely to see. Um, and, and like, yeah, of course, you know, Penny feels that she has to tell everybody she's not a slut for needing an abortion. And, you know, and like, and Jerry Orbach is like, who got this mm-hmm. girl in trouble? Who's responsible <laughs> for this trouble. girl? <laughs> who owns this girl's problem? You know, all that shit. Sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, but I will say, like, as a woman, as a woman who has had an abortion and is very glad to have done it, as a woman who was watching this movie uh, fearful about what things will be like, it's still a charming summer movie. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's when, huge. That's a that's a big. That's a lot. Of, that's you're saying a lot there with about this movie's six. Why this movie works or how this works. hard bar to clear. And it feels like a lightning in a bottle movie too for all these things to work. And then you yeah. learn about the production. And then you see, um, you know, Patrick Swayze went on and Jennifer Grey didn't have the biggest career but the people involved didn't have huge that huge careers the director made some movies it feels like everything just fell in the right place to get this movie done because it's not like this team of movie makers ever had that kind of success again yeah totally lightning in a bottle for sure matt i think you absolutely like that's a perfect description of it i do not think these people set out to achieve what they achieved and somehow they did and it's lasting and cool Just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other boys. 
One of my new favorites on the soundtrack is a song I just take for granted because you hear it so much. Um, but hearing it in the context of the movie again and realizing how much the song kind of just perfectly introduces the movie and the movie works with the song is Be My Baby by the Ronettes. And that's a good one. The movie opens with it and it's just that famous, big, thick drum beat, which we can cut in here. The doom, 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 and the echoes for like miles. I just love that thick, it's Phil Spector, wall of sound style, 60s music. And when I hear it, it just makes me feel good in this kind of, not nostalgic way, just like, oh, this sounds so cool. Like the literal oral sound of it going into your ears. Maybe I was programmed by baby boomers because my parents are baby boomers and and I've heard so much of it that it is some weird nostalgic for me, but I just love the style and it sounds so cool. And I love how it introduces the movie. And there is obviously the nostalgia part because you hear those drums and you hear the um, singers, the Ronettes, but I'll get to who's really singing on this in a little while. Um, and you hear the big um, orchestral strings and the um, castanets and the shakers with all that. And you're just really in 1963. I think it's a perfect opener. And there's a lot of songs that you can probably do this. I think Stay is another with that weird high voice and these um, kind of just iconic early 60s um, songs. But I picked Be My Baby because I realized that's the song I most associate with Dirty Dancing, even more than Hungry Eyes or um, definitely not She's Like the Wind, but um, I had the time on my more life. More than Hungry Eyes? Yeah, really? Be My Baby, because her name is Baby, and, in, oh, and it yeah. opens on Yeah, Edgar on Wright should have put this shit in Baby Driver. What oh was he my thinking? God. Yeah, because there's another one, when uh, the one with Mickey and Sylvia. Um, how do you call your lover boy? Oh, yeah, yeah, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another baby thing when she's singing it. Um, but this song has some really fun stuff going on because it's also, you know, it's usually referred to as the quintessential wall of sound by Phil Spector, who's a terrible yes. guy. We can get into that on another podcast. <laughs> but um, for people who don't know what the wall of sound is, it was just his concept to, it wasn't just turning everything up lighter, it was louder. It was just making more of it. So if he had a piano, he would record the same exact thing on a piano, on an electric keyboard, on an organ. So they'd all be playing by the same time. If sometimes he'd record a drum a bunch of times. It, it, it sounded different than the way music had sounded before he did it. Yeah. And if instead of a tambourine slap, it would be like five tambourine slapping with a ton of echo. And his theory, he would even say, would he's thought even if the song wasn't that good, if he can just cram it with so much sound and he had his famous backup band called the wrecking crew and he had strings playing, then people would just like the song. Even if it wasn't that good, he can make it um, that good. And I think this is a perfect example of that, which is why I'm bringing it up. And the funny things I learned about it, which I didn't know because I was thinking about the song and I knew about the world, world wall of sound, but Sonny and Cher are in the backup singer mix back there which is oh, really, really, really <laughs> funny. And wow. he's hanging out with them because they're Sonny the Cher and Cher at the time. It's the early 60s. And Cher isn't big yet. And he's like, oh, I need more backup singers in there. 
um, you guys want to do it? And Cher says that she was like, well, here's how I can sing. And I don't. And she was like, and he was like, no, 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 I just need some noise. And Cher jokes like the be- that was the beginning of my singing career. Someone just needed some noise. And because he would put so many voices singing in it, um, it just sounded cool. So they're in that yeah. mix in the background. You probably can't pick them out, but they're singing in the background. And then the lead vocals, which are amazing. There's actually, this is um, by the Ronettes. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but there's only one Ronette actually in the song. He made the whole song, had the wrecking crew do it, had people come in, had overdubs. And then they flew out, uh, Veronica Bennett, who was one of the Ronettes to overdub the lead vocals. And she was just 18 years old and she came out and she sang it and the band went nuts. And she was like, I was 18 and they were like freaking out telling me I was going to be the next Billie Holiday. And it was like the vibrato in her voice, the way she sang it, Mm -hmm. they couldn't believe like how she was doing it. And she belted out the song. And, um, the other fun fact with the song is the famous drum beat, the doom. That we were talking about. The drummer claims that he was supposed to hit it a beat early. He dropped his drumstick, picked it up, and smacked it, trying to, and just kept it going. And everyone was like, oh, that was cool. And I think they knew he had kind of fucked it up, but they were like, oh my God, that sounded awesome. And then that just became this iconic drum beat, and everyone was so into it. And then tons of other songs would use this drum beat in different ways after. Yet another happy accident in this movie. Yeah, maybe that's the secret to good art. It's just like chock full of these serendipitous, like it worked out in the end kind of moments. Was it Yogi Berra who said sometimes it's better to be lucky than good? You know, Yogi Berra said a lot of things he didn't say. I love that quote. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And I think maybe that's the, that's what happened with uh, dirty dancing actually. So I mentioned earlier about how I hadn't seen um, this movie before, and that was surprising to me because I thought I had. This has happened to me before, too, where I think I've seen a movie because you're surrounded by it all the time, Mm -hmm. and you you go to people's houses and it's on, or you flip past it on cable, people talk about it all the time, and so you assume you've seen it. And then whenever you make that assumption... You miss so much. It's funny then when we assume that because I, you know, I've said before, one of my favorite movies is It's a Wonderful Life. And I think that's a movie that this happens every year. It's really fun as a fan of that movie to watch people like on social media who think they know what that movie is because it's so it's everywhere. You know, everybody thinks they know it Mm -hmm. and then they see it and it's so shocking to them that it's like, oh, shit, this is not what I thought it was. I had that a couple times with um, this movie. And one of those times was nobody puts baby in a corner. That line <laughs> did not happen like I thought it was going to happen. Nobody puts baby in a corner. I, I never really actually thought about this, but I do think that I kind of thought she said it about herself <laughs> and that she was saying it defensively and aggressively. And to, referring like, to herself start, in third person? Yeah, like at the start of a fight or something like that. Like she was like saying, you know, definitively. Just like, hold yeah, my earrings. Yeah, yeah. Nobody puts a baby <laughs> in a yes, corner. Yes, basically that's how I thought. And then when it happens, I was like, whoa, well, that's not at all what I thought it was going to be because it's, it's and, and then it was interesting later when I read about 
um, none of the people, everybody who involved in the movie was sort of laughing at what an iconic line it was because none of yeah. them thought it was iconic. The writer herself doesn't think it's a very good line. Patrick Swayze. She says it could have been any line. She's like, oh, it could have been Patrick any line. Patrick Swayze hated it. He thought it, yeah, yeah he thought, he thought it was, it was corny, corny. Yeah. like nobody involved in it liked it. She's not even in a corner. <laughs> yeah. She's like just sitting over. She's by a, like a pillar on the wall. All I'm saying <laughs> is that I think it's an interesting thing that how lines precede movies. And I've had this experience before with other lines and other movies. And I'm wondering if you guys have, I've had examples of this too, where, where I'm like, eh, kind of like yeah. nobody puts baby in the corner, but I also have one that uh, remains a mystery to me. Maybe you'll inspire me, Joshua, to, to watch this movie in the, in the coming week. Oh, I can't wait to hear this. You guys, I have no fucking idea what is meant by, what we have here is a failure to communicate. Uh, <laughs> like I have no, I have <laughs> that movie. Cool hand. Luke is one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm sure that that's true. I don't doubt it for a second. Yeah. I've never avoided watching it. It's right. just never happened. You'll have so much fun. Yes. It's one of those movies. Just like force yourself to press the button when you're wondering what to watch and, and you'll be fine. What we have here is a failure to communicate could go a lot of ways. Like, mm. I mean, it, it could be a threat. Like, you're not receiving my clear intention to hurt or harm you, right? Like, uh, what, what we have here is a failure to communicate is one way it could it could all it could like a computer is that what no no like a like a i I picture like a um i picture like like a a mob like enforcer who's like saying to somebody oh oh, you clearly don't understand the stakes of your failure to do what i want you to do yeah exactly totally another thing that it could mean is is like it could be like really like insightful about the situation it could be like oh my god like what we have here is just like a failure to communicate. I can totally see it like going. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Is that what it is? That's, that's no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> or or it could or it could be um or it could be like a, a sort of um the the beginning of like a speech like what we have here is a failure to communicate and now i am going to like deliver my diatribe to you all of these things would be completely different scenes with completely different yeah, emotional relationships they yeah. and they are all mm-hmm. in my universe in my schrodinger's <laughs> universe like, <laughs> they all happen. Are, they are they're all possible and they all happen yeah. I, when I saw um, Gone with the Wind, I was pretty old when I saw Gone with the Wind for the first time. And, you know, I put in all this time watching this movie, but I was mostly surprised that I was enjoying it. But it's still long, even if you're enjoying it. Oh, it's like and, eight hours. <laughs> when he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I was like, <laughs> hell yeah! yeah. It doesn't sound from afar like it is the most cutting moment imaginable. And this brutal brutal thing that the movie has been building towards for hours i got i was i was knocked out by that line i mean in that moment he's basically saying i don't care if you die but also i am still the sexiest person you'll ever know (laughs) so deal with that stupid the the patrick swayze of 1930s cinema right heather (laughs) no not the fucking boring ass patrick swayze all right, then here we go. People here we go. Magazine here we go. Let's decided do it. in 1991 was the sexiest man alive. Wait, Let's you do it. Since we've, Come since we've been to Clark Gable, let me set it up. Let me set it up. <laughs> when he saved her, 
I mean, I, I could never do anything like that. There was something that... I mean, the reason people treat me like I'm nothing is because I'm nothing. That's not true. You, you're everything. You don't understand the way it is. I mean, for somebody like me, last month I'm, I'm eating juju bees to keep alive. This month, women are stuffing diamonds in my pockets. I'm balancing on shit, and as quick as that, I could be down there again. No. Since we've been talking about this movie, Matt and I have discovered that Heather has a, what I would say is an unreasonable dislike for Patrick Spacey. And I'm not even that big a fan. I definitely don't like Point Break as much as 99% of the He's world He's a great does. villain in it. Um, you know, even like... Uh, Ghost. Yeah, imagine Clark Gable and Ghost. Well, I Come forgot on. about it. Come on. I was going to say the one where he the one where he fights everybody. Roadhouse. Roadhouse is another one that I think Which is one of the movies that he has a song on the soundtrack. I believe of. it. Oh I my think God. it's I think it's fine. I've seen that. it I've seen it more than once, but I think it's another movie that people like way more than me. So I'm not saying that I'm some big fan or something, but even I'm like sort of like taken aback. So I want to hear Heather's rant about Patrick Swayze. I, I wouldn't say that I dislike Patrick Swayze. I don't like hate the guy. I just think he's junk he's just he's that sounds like some hatred he's just so mediocre in everything he does i mean we've established that we all love this movie dirty dancing it's a great movie it's still fun to watch there's chemistry between them it's but he's a fucking dolt in it like he's oh i think he's great in it he's he's like he's i think he's excellent in it he's not he, he doesn't deliver the lines in any way that you actually care about. He's just dumber than a box of rocks. And if you're if you're going to be that dumb, you have to look fucking amazing doing it. And I'm sorry, editors of People magazine circa 1991. Patrick Swayze <laughs> does not, in fact, look amazing. Doing I don't think it. it was only the editors of People magazine that thought Patrick Swayze was hot. But that's just a hunch. You think they were speaking for the people? <laughs> he had, yes he had a very <laughs> i'm getting that now he had a very brief run from like dirty dancing it was just like four or five years and you're right there's nothing he's not an amazing actor At and all. to me he's kind of he's he's kind of got that like i don't know like kid face on a grown-up that um who's the who's goldie hawn's husband oh, i can't think of kurt his russell name. kurt russell he kind of, they kind of got a similar. Kurt Russell's got, no, he's got they're vibe. Like Kurt Russell's like white he's dudes go with on. dimples and he's a twinkle do in their eyes. Fun eye. with you, like I would love to be. I would love to be like stuck. Uh, he's kind of interchangeable for uh, with Swayze for me. He could have been in Roadhouse. Oh my God, you could not be. More. Patrick Swayze is like the bootleg Canal Street version oh, Kurt, of Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell. Kurt Russell is like. I don't know. You like, don't make me bring up John Mellencamp again. But watching Dirty Dancing, this is, this put me in his corner and then we can, we can hate him all we want. We want, but who else could be in this movie and pull it off? Billy Zane. I'm joking. I'm joking. He would have been bad. And I was really trying to do this exercise because he was in the ballet. He has, he is a great dancer. He looks like a guy who's a natural dancer. No question about that. Like his mom was a choreographer. He's been raised on dance. He knows how to do it. No question. And I thought being like Johnny, the guy with the leather jacket who like talks back to the, to the boss, like I was buying it, but he's really like stressed about being a a poor guy and like, doesn't want to be a paint house painter his whole life. And I was like, okay, who can do that? Who can do the working class white dude thing in 1963, but also be like 
a crazy sexy dancer and have the chemistry with Jennifer Grey and I just couldn't find anyone and I'm thinking one of the things about this is that you don't have to defend Patrick Swayze because Patrick Swayze is the winner here. Like, <laughs> Heather's point of view is... I'm doing it is, for the fans. I'm, I'm keeping... I know there's going to the be a lot of dirty know. dancing fans turning this on the and they're going to be like, who I think is this woman? I don't think... No, I think, Matt, you're wrong. I don't think that the fan. Yeah, I don't think that the fans of this movie are like, oh, Patrick Swayze at all. I think that... I think the fans of this movie are like... This is such a great love story, and Baby is awesome no. because Baby I have a friend, makes me feel good about myself. I have a friend who loves Patrick Swayze. People, I know people that really like Patrick Swayze. <sighs> I know people, too. My God. friend. You guys know terrible people. Some of them listen to this podcast, so you're going to call our audience <laughs> terrible? <laughs> now I had the time of my life. Y'all want to talk about it? I had the time of my life. Yeah. I think we have to, right? Let's I want to talk sing about that song. Isn't that song so fun to sing? Do it. Sing it. I want Heather to sing I think I sung it on our... Well, I think you guys we should both <laughs> sing it. It's actually the way to go. <laughs> I was uh, trying to throw it to the duet. Um, so, yeah. I mean, come on. This is like as iconic a movie song as there is. I don't... You know, who knows? Maybe we wouldn't even be doing Dirty uh, Dancing if it wasn't for this song. The time of my life. And... <laughs> I owe it all to you. Owe it all to you. I mean, we could we could definitely sing it. It's a great song. (laughs) 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 Anyway, you're right, Joshua. We would probably not be paying attention to this movie were it not for this song. Yeah, it's 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 real iconic, real iconic, and you know, um, okay. So it's written by the same guy, uh, Frankie Provetti, who wrote uh, Hungry Eyes, and um, he wrote it at the request of the guy who was putting together the soundtrack, the guy who got all those other songs together. He didn't want to do it, and he basically got convinced to do it. And um, one of the things that I mentioned earlier was about how the movie is sort of conscious of the way that it uses like modern songs and old songs and mixes them up. Um, And I think this song kind of does that a little bit too because this is clearly an 80s uh, ballady pop song, but it does have a little bit of an oldness to it and they really get to that by getting Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers to sing. Yeah. So I think that's a very conscious yeah. like nod yeah. to like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go old school with this. We're not gonna get Kenny Loggins, right? And Kenny Loggins <laughs> could have sung some version of this, right? You're totally right. Yeah, Kenny could have come in on this. He this is right it. up Kenny's alley. Oh, he would have loved to. He, he was ready. It with he was Jennifer- ready. Jennifer Warnes or Jennifer Warnes. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce it. Jennifer Warnes. And uh, she had previously had a big hit with um, Up Where We Belong with Joe Cocker. So let's lift us up. Let's that, lift does that us ring a bell? Up where we yeah. belong. Up where we belong. Oh, sure. Oh, now yes. you know. Yeah. Okay. It was me and Joshua's uh-huh. duet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so she knows. So she's a duet. She's She's got big duet energy going on. But, you know, this is a, this is a big hit. I mean, there's not... <laughs> There's, you can read a very long Wikipedia page about this song. There's about a lot the of information here. on it. You know, it won, but it, it 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 won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. It won the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song. It won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals. I mean, it's big. Wow. You know, uh, to this day, 
I've Had the Time of My Life is listed as the third most popular song played at funerals in the United Kingdom. In the UK specifically. (laughs) Yes. Uh, That is really funny. At funerals. So I guess in England it hits a little different. And I owe it all to you. And then someone pops out of the coffin. Who's supposed to be the speaker of the song when it's played at a funeral? Uh, The dead guy? Yeah, I guess so, right? And then when it kicks in, you kind of see, like, you know, the the widow, like, starting to move her shoulders (laughs) up. And then then so it's long. That is so fucking weird. The Brits are weird. They are Uh, weird people. They are weird, weird people. Oh, man, I hope yeah. I die first so I can play this trick on you guys. Oh, nice. You guys go wait. to my funeral and this, and this song comes on. Wait, I'm sorry, Joshua. Who's had the time of their life in that scenario? The dead person or the, the living person? The people? dead person. I've, I've had the time of my life. Yes, the dead person it has had the, the time of their life. And he yes. owes it to all of the people who show up at his funeral. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Heather, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and at the big question what do you think is it the perfect movie soundtrack or if not which one do you think is working better the music the the movie itself or the soundtrack itself or maybe they are the perfect harmony Hmm. what do you think i i have a big stupid answer let's hear it and and 100 percent yes and the reason is because it's fucking dirty dance (laughs) And if that doesn't sound what to so find what like, a perfect movie soundtrack is, then then, then nothing. It's like else. the Ouroboros, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the evidence is that it's the Dirty Dancing yes. soundtrack. To the question of is the Dirty Dancing soundtrack yes. the perfect movie soundtrack? Yes, because it's Dirty Fucking Dancing, the soundtrack in the movie. All right. What else do you want out of life? <laughs> I. What do you think? Do you agree, Heather? I mean. I think that the two are like a beautiful marriage and I was really enjoying watching the movie. I would never put this soundtrack on and listen to it. Yeah, I wouldn't either. In a million trillion years. Too late. Too many good hits on it for me to stay away. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to say no, it's actually not. Um, It's just a really great movie that, that where the music supervision was, was very well done. Yes, it was. Um, but I, but I, but I think that I think that the movie is carrying this music a little bit more than I would, I would require for something to be truly the perfect soundtrack. Well, what about I had the time of our life though? Because we were saying that carried the movie before. I, mean, I think yeah. that's I think that's the exception. I like yeah like the, I don't mm-hmm. like I okay. don't necessarily right. like that song. Um, I don't think I've ever ever chosen to put that song on it's because you've never Um, been to a british funeral joshua (laughs) that's true that's true i haven't died in england yet so you know we'll see 
The um, but um, but it is perfect in the movie. It is perfect in the movie. There's no question about yeah. it. But I agree. Yeah. Like this, these songs, "Hungry Eyes," "She's Like the Wind," um, those aren't those aren't songs I necessarily like. They work in the movie. Don't get me wrong. And even the old songs, like "Be My Baby," I love. But "Be My Baby" is I like it better in other things. I I would I'd like to listen to it on its own. I don't remember ever thinking that the older songs in the movie were like knocking my socks off. I don't remember ever being totally. like, oh shit, they did that song. They're, oh, they're, the Mickey yeah, and Sylvia great. one? Perfection. Yeah. More perfection. Maybe. I don't know. They didn't stand out to me necessarily. They're great. They fit. They're, the music supervision is amazing. And apparently she wrote the script with the songs like she handed people a tape of like these are the songs that play at Edgar these parts. Edgar Wright style. Yeah, Edgar Wright style. So mm-hmm. look, it works. She wrote it's them great. In the script, it's yep. not it's not the perfect movie soundtrack for me because I don't necessarily uh like it on its own. Um but you know mm-hmm. it works great in the movie. So I guess it is it is a version of a perfect movie soundtrack. I'm not gonna give it the yes, but I I could see why everybody else probably does. I mean you could say that she's like the win keeps it from perfection. <laughs> My magic phrase, but you I, could I think indeed Heather would definitely agree with that. that, it's, that is it's terrible. It it's a terrible song, but it's goofiness it's and swaziness song. and of the moment. Just it all adds up to to dirty dancing. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, there we go. There we go. We're back to that. <laughs> yep. That in the end, it is dirty dancing. In the still of the night. Our next pick is Heather's, I believe. And this is where Heather's going to tell us what she picks. Guys, I want to do train spotting. Choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television. You're a quiet, sensitive type. A little bit crazy, a little bit bad. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. Only to get my foot in the door. What's on the menu this evening, sir? The dodgiest scam in a lifetime of dodgy scams. Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. I wanted to train spotting because it was the... first one I thought of when we first started talking about this show and doing this show is like I I I want right. to I love I want to talk about that I want to think about it I want an excuse to watch it again I want an excuse to listen to it again I want an excuse to like play in that space all uh, again um and I feel like we've gotten to a place where we're we're ready for it I think we were putting it off until we had enough under our belts to yeah. to know what we thought about these kinds of soundtracks and to have like some knowledge that we didn't have when we started. And I think that was right of us. And, and I think we've actually achieved it. I do think all three of us have learned some things that would make us better prepared to, to tackle train spotting. Is it going to be a vibe soundtrack? Is it going to be a jukebox soundtrack? You know, is it going to be, uh, well, you know, is it part of the, the big soundtrack era? Defin- All of these questions. Is it definitive of the yeah. peak of the big soundtrack yeah, totally. era? Big questions. And, and How does also, it stand next like, to Pulp like Fiction? Pulp Fiction, is train spotting even cool? Yeah, we'll see. I think is a legitimate question. I'm not entirely sure that it is. Um, it was a game changer. It felt like a big soundtrack moment, that and Pulp Fiction. 
it was a it was a well that's like that's just it is like it was a it was on the level of pulp fiction in terms of like required listening required album ownership required viewing uh for so long required poster having for a lot of people required poster having for sure Thanks for listening. As always, we'll post a link to a Spotify playlist with all the songs from the episode in the show notes, along with links to our Twitter and our Instagram, where we'd love to hear from you. We'll see you again in two weeks, but I got something a little bit different for you at the end of this week's episode, because I'd like to leave with a tribute. We lost a real soundtrack giant here in the last few weeks. Her stage name was Q Lazarus, real name Diane Lucky. She passed away recently. Very interesting story. I highly suggest you look her up, but you mostly know her probably from her song Goodbye Horses, which was discovered by Jonathan Demme and featured in several of his movies, actually, but most notably in a scene in Silence of the Lambs that you definitely remember. It's not just one of my favorite scenes of all time. It is one of my favorite songs of all time, soundtrack or not. So I'm going to leave you with that song here today uh and it's kind of long if you uh want to turn off the podcast here go ahead because we are done but if you want to hear an all-timer of a song then here it is q lazarus's goodbye horses